Let's pray together. Father, I pray that you would, through this passage before us, help the weak and lift up the downtrodden and humble the proud and encourage the faint-hearted. And Lord, I pray that you would cause one of the fruits of this passage to be that, that we're all able to be patient with others and we're all cognizant of the fact that you have forgiven us in Christ. And so, Lord, we pray, I pray that you would make us tender-hearted, patient, forgiving, and ready to share the mercy that you have given to us in Jesus. Help us, Lord, to be those those who are able to confess our sin. Lord, keep us from being people who, because of our pride, won't confess our sin, won't talk about problems that we're having, and are, as a result, not reconciled to you and stuck with festering wounds. So do your work, I pray, Lord, through this passage, by the power of your Spirit, in the name of Jesus, amen. <clears throat> I don't think you'll find anything like Psalm 38 in any other great religious tradition of the world. And it's not because there's not the need for it. So, so in Psalm 38, I would invite you to turn in your Bible to Psalm 38. We'll be looking at this this morning. In Psalm 38, David frankly confesses his sin. And it's not because he's the only kind of religious figure who has sin in the world. Muhammad did some really wicked things, some things that he should have written a psalm like this in response to. And you won't find it in the Quran. This does not exist in Islam, a, a, a passage like this. And the Buddha, uh, that man was 30 years old. He had a wife and a child, and he just left them. He just left them to go find nirvana, abandoned his... He needed to confess. He needed to do something, and it's not there. You will not find it. This passage, Psalm 38, is stunning. Here you have the king of Israel, a hero of the faith. And in front of everybody, he's saying what a sinner he is and how devastating to himself personally, his sin is. This is a remarkable passage of Scripture. In the first half of Psalm 38, verses 1 through 12, we'll see the rubble of sin's destruction in David's life. And then in the rest of the psalm, verses 13 through 22, he, he responds to sin's destruction in his life as he silently waits on the Lord. Um, before we look at the body of the psalm, look at the superscription there. It says, a psalm of David, and then the ESV renders this, for the memorial offering. Other translations, like the New King James has, to bring to remembrance. If you're looking at the Holman Christian Standard Bible, it says, for remembrance. And, and I think that possibly, uh, that's, a, that's a better translation, for remembrance, 
which would prompt the question, whose remembrance? Is this for David to remember what it was like? I mean, this happens to us, doesn't it? We, we go through a spot where maybe we got caught in some transgression or some sin was exposed and we had to confess it. And then things get better. And we can almost forget what it was like to, be, to feel guilt. So, so I think there's a sense in which, yeah, the psalm is for that. The psalm is for us to remember what it is to be sinful, and we all are. But then also, I think there's remembrance in another quarter. This could be a psalm written for David to say, Lord, I want you to remember. I want you to remember my humble repentance. So I think both of those things could be intended by that, that superscription for remembrance. In verses 1 and 2 of Psalm 38, we see that sin brings wrath and discipline. Sin brings wrath and discipline. David opens this psalm recognizing the most devastating aspect, the most devastating result of sin, God's wrath. That's what results from sin. Look at what he says in verse 1. O Lord, rebuke me not in your anger, nor discipline me in your wrath. Now, David is not saying, don't rebuke me. And he's not saying, don't discipline me. He's saying, don't be angry when you do it. And for him to say this, this, you know what this shows about David? What this shows about David is that he cares most about the relationship between him and the Father. Because he's, he's agreeing with the Lord on what's right and wrong. He's agreeing with the Lord. I'm guilty. I deserve these consequences. He's simply saying, please don't be angry with me. I think that, that if, you know, if you're a parent in this room, you can imagine how you might feel if your child, um, you're disciplining this child, you feel like you're constantly having to deal with this child, it's happening over and over again, when are we going to get past this, when is this child going to learn, and, and more and more as this continues to happen, the parent gets, the, the fuse gets shorter and shorter, and there's exasperation beginning to develop, but then imagine how that parent would respond if the child came and said, I did it again, I know I'm guilty. I know you're going to spank me. Just please don't be angry with me. I mean, that parent's heart would melt, wouldn't it? And, and I, think, I think that uh, this is the, the beautiful thing about this is that the Lord, the Lord loves to show mercy. Rebuke me not in your anger, nor discipline me in your wrath. And then in verse 2, David begins to talk about the way that the Lord's conviction has already begun to come upon him. He says, for your arrows have sunk into me and your hand has come down on me. I don't know if David is speaking literally or metaphorically. It could be that, that literally he perceives the Lord's discipline in the form of the, the army of Israel di- suffering defeat in battle. And so he's seeing the arrows of the enemy piercing Israelite men as the Lord's arrows bringing discipline and the hand of the Lord being against Israel. Or maybe it's just metaphorical. Maybe David is experiencing the kinds of things that we're going to read about in the rest of the psalm, and he's speaking of those things as the Lord's arrows and his heavy hand. But he's certainly 
getting at the way that God has brought conviction. And because of this conviction, David is asking the Lord not to be angry. In verses 3 through 7, so sin, sin brings wrath and discipline, verses 1 and 2. Verses 3 through 7, sin weakens us physically. Sin physically saps our vitality. It weakens us. Look at the first words of verse 3. There is no soundness in my flesh. And then look down at the last words of verse 7. There is no soundness in my flesh. If you, you, know, if you look closely at the way your text is printed, uh, if yours is like mine, the ESV has a, a sort of blank space between verse 8 and verse 9. I disagree with the way they're dividing up the text there. I think they ought to put the blank space between verse 7 and verse 8 because of the way that uh, this, these two phrases, there's no soundness in my flesh, brackets, verses 3 through 7, and then I'm going to try to show that verses 8, and 10, 8 through 10 belong together. But at any rate, here... We're dealing with a passage where David is saying, I am physically weakened, and it's because of his sin. Look at at verse 3. There's no soundness in my flesh because of your indignation. There's no health in my bones because of my sin. So David is feeling weakened in his flesh, and he's he's feeling unsound in his bones. In his flesh and bones, he's perceiving God's wrath against him. There is a profound connection between our spiritual state and our physical health. And and David is is talking about this as he he describes, as he responds to the Lord. He's, He's getting at the way that his spiritual sin has resulted in physical unease. And then he says in verse 4, he says, my iniquities have gone over my head. The language that he uses here to describe the iniquities piling, it's as though they've piled up and then washed over him. The way that that the rainwaters continue to fall. And if it rains too much in one place and one time, suddenly you've got these flash floods. And it's as though David is speaking of his perception. I think he's perceiving the guilt of his sin. If you go back and read Leviticus again and again, there are these situations described where this person commits something that's forbidden by, they, they, they commit a transgression of the law, and then Moses speaks of the way that they realize the guilt of their sin. And that's what happens to us, isn't it? We're trucking along, committing sins right and left, and then all of a sudden, all the evil, all of the implications of what we've done starts to come home to us. And David is, is picturing this as though the, the raindrops of his individual transgressions have now all piled up into this pool, and they've broken loose, and they're washing over him. And, it, and this tidewater is so, so deep that he can't stand in it, and he can't breathe. My iniquities have gone over my head. And then he transitions, he changes the metaphor, and he says, like a heavy burden, they are too heavy for me. So the sin now, it's like this load of guilt that he's having to bear. And I, I love this, this hymn that we, I think we sing this hymn, Approach My Soul, the Mercy Seat, where Jesus answers prayer. There humbly fall before his feet, for none can perish there. Bowed down beneath a load of sin, 
by Satan sorely pressed, by war without and fears within, I come to thee for rest. That's exactly what, I mean, David's not coming to Jesus, right? Because Jesus is still in the future. But that's what David is doing in this psalm. In this psalm, David is bringing his load of guilt to the Lord. And he's saying, they've, they've, they've washed over my head. It's too heavy for me to carry. And the thing about our sin, when it becomes known, is that depending on what the issues are, other people know about it. And the way that we respond to that often is we feel embarrassed. In some cases, that's the way we ought to feel. We should feel embarrassed. But you have to deal with it. If you don't deal with it, it just gets worse. And the only way to deal with it is, is the way that we've seen things happen here, both publicly and privately. And that is, you, you have to confess this sin, and you have to repudiate it, repent of it, and, and then go forward trusting in Christ. Until you do that, your experience is going to be verse 5, where David says, my wounds stink and fester. I, I don't think I've ever had a wound that stunk. Praise God. Because, because I think for a wound to stink, it would have to go untreated. And we live in a situation where often if we get cut or if, if we get scraped or something, we develop some kind of sore that, that could get there. We get treatment. But David is describing something that's infected and it's probably oozing this nasty stuff that's odorous. He says, my wounds stink and fester. And then he acknowledges that it's because of what he did. He should have known better. He says, my wounds stink and fester because of my foolishness. The stinking and festering rot is communicating the shameful state that David has brought upon himself because of his sin. Again, we, we have to become people who are wise enough to see that sin is advertising pleasure and relief, but it's only going to pay out infection and pus. That's what sin's going to give you. It's going to say, this will make you feel good. This will take away your load of care. And it's going to leave you with a rotten, stinking, festering wound. David continues, he says in verse 6, I'm utterly bowed down and prostrate. All the day I go about mourning. It's like he can't stand up straight. And the ESV translates the first line of verse 7 differently than some other translations. The ESV says, my, my sides are filled with burning. Um, the, the King James um, speaks of a wasting disease in my loins. Maybe you've seen that, that uh, Tim Hawkins clip where he, he talks about how he signed his favorite Bible verse and he meant to put Psalm, I think it was uh, 34, um, 8, O taste and see that the Lord is good, and he got the numbers wrong, and he put Psalm 38, 7, I have a painful disease in my loins. <laughs> it's very humorous, humorous. You can find that on YouTube. Uh, <clears throat> Uh, This painful disease in his midsection is probably connected to the the reason that David can't stand upright. He's utterly bowed, he's bent over. Now, we don't know what caused this, but again he says at the end of verse 7, 
There's no soundness in my flesh. When I say we don't know what caused it, we don't know what particular sin David is talking about. But we do know that it was sin that brought this on. So look at what David has addressed here. In verses 1 and 2, he's talking about the theological ramifications of his sin. God is angry with him and bringing discipline against him. Verses 3 through 7, he's talking about the physical impact of his sin. His body is weakened. As I was studying this, I thought of Dostoevsky's novel Crime and Punishment, where, where uh, Raskolnikov, the, the protagonist in the novel, he suffers a severe illness as a result of the crime that he's committed, the horror of the crime that he's committed. And in, in, in Russian, the name Raskolnikov is built off this, the root of this word raskol, which means to split or to cleave. And it, it matches the crime that Raskolnikov has committed. And it also describes what's happened to him physically, or sp- uh, spiritually and psychologically. He has split himself in two by committing this crime. Now in verse, verse 8, David moves into the spiritual ramifications of his sin. Theological, physical, now spiritual, verse 8. He says, I'm feeble and crushed. I groan because of the tumult of my heart. He continues in verse 9, O Lord, all my longing is before you. My sighing is not hidden from you. So the groaning in verse 8, the sighing in verse 9, and then verse 10, my heart throbs. Heart in verse 8, heart in verse 10. My strength fails me. And the light of my eyes, it has also gone from me. So David is he's physically weakened, and his spiritual condition is also compromised because sin weakens us spiritually. Sin steals joy, and it leaves behind gloom. It's like the Grinch stealing Christmas. It, it makes these promises, you know, that... Grinch is lying to little Cindy Lou Who in the living room there. I'm taking these toys away, and I'm going to bring them back better. But once sin has done his work, those toys are gone. So David is describing here a a feeling of, of this numbed and crushed and groaning spiritual state. And when he says in verse 9, all my longing is before you, He doesn't specify what kind of longing that is. So I'm inclined to think it's longing in both directions. I I think he's probably saying something like this, Lord, you know me. You know the kinds of things that I long for, the sinful things that are ruining my life. And you also know that I long to be holy. All my longings are before you. So he's describing his heart throbbing, Strength abating and lights, eyes not lighting up but going dark. Sin has made it so that God is going to discipline David. And I'm inclined to think that verses 3 through really 12, but so far we're to verse 10, are describing the results of God's discipline. David is weakened physically and spiritually. He's groaning and moaning. So sin has theological and physical and spiritual ramifications. It also has social ramifications that we see in verses 11 and 12. Verse 11, my friends and companions stand aloof 
from my plague, and my nearest kin stand far off. So just when David is most needy, he has these stinking wounds. I don't know if they're literal or metaphorical, but he, he feels vulnerable. He feels distant from God. He, he knows that God is not pleased with him. Now he's abandoned by companions, by perhaps family members. When he says they're my nearest kin, David's allies have withdrawn from him. And at the same time, his enemies, verse 12, are emboldened. So he says in verse 12, those who seek my life lay their snares. Those who seek my hurt speak of ruin and meditate treachery all day long. Probably, this is, we, we see this kind of thing, this is like what we see in our culture, isn't it? Some politician or some leader says something stupid, something they shouldn't have said. They make a gaffe, they do something dumb, and what happens? Their allies, they, with, they, they back away, don't want to be associated with that guy, and then the enemies attack. The sharks see blood in the water, and here they come. And that's what David is dealing with. This dynamic in verses 11 and 12, and, and this, is where, this is where our hope is, isn't it? The dynamic in verses 11 and 12, abandoned by friends, attacked by enemies, was never more deeply experienced than when every one of those disciples of the true king of Israel fled that night in Gethsemane. And that night led to the morning that saw the high priest of Israel and the Roman prefect pinned him to that cross. Abandoned by friends, attacked by enemies. So the first 12 verses of Psalm 38, David is talking about his suffering from his sin. His relationship with God suffers. His physical strength is sapped. His spiritual vitality is no more. And his friends have abandoned him and his enemies attack. The rest of the psalm, verses 13 through 22, tell us David's response to these woes. The first thing David tells us in verses 13 and 14 is that sin deadens us and leaves us without excuse. Sin, sin deadens us. Look at what David says in verse 13. But I am like a deaf man. I do not hear, like a mute man who does not open his mouth. I have become like a man who does not hear and in whose mouth are no rebukes. I think this is working in several directions. One, one aspect of what David is talking about is the way that when we sin, really what we're doing is we're trying, we're trying to get satisfaction from some idol. At some level in there, there's always worship involved in our sin. And we're, we're looking to a dead idol to provide for us what the living God will provide for us. And those dead idols, the Bible says, they neither see nor hear nor eat nor smell. They have no sensory capacity. And, and so in various psalms, Psalm 115 is one of them, uh, the, the psalmist says, those who make them, the idols, they become like them. 
And you also see this when Moses warns Israel that if they, if they break the covenant with the Lord, he's going to send them into the nations, among the nations, and there they're going to worship these idols of wood and stone that don't see or hear or eat or smell. And what's going to happen is they're going to be spiritually dead because their hearts are going to be hard and their ears are going to be closed and they're not going to be able to perceive reality. And this is what happens to us when we sin. We become closed to other people. We become so self-focused and so self-consumed and so deadened by transgression that, that we can't perceive what's going on in other people's lives. So I think that's one aspect of this. Another aspect of it is, think about how verses 13 and 14 would work with relationship to verses 11 and 12. David can't hear and he can't speak. Now, when you're guilty and everybody knows it, you got no excuses to make for other people. There's nothing you can say. There's, there's, there's nothing you can... You're guilty. And, and there's no way for you to win them back. There's nothing you can say to try to win your allies back to your side. And if he's deaf, well, as the enemies are setting their snares, as they're, they're speaking ruin in verse 12... He can't pick up on that. He's dead. He, he's, he's closed. He can't sense the danger. So there's, I think there's a, a relationship between verses 11 and 12 and verses 13 and 14 because David's inability to hear the charges of the accusers, the attacks of the accusers, and his inability to offer a verbal defense of himself, it all goes back to the fact that he's guilty. His friends are far off, his enemies are speaking evil against him, and there's nothing he can do to remedy the implications, the results of his sin. In verses 15 and 16, we see that sin has one remedy. Verses 1 and 2, sin brings the wrath of God. Verses 3 through 7, sin weakens us physically. 8 through 10, sin weakens us spiritually. 11 and 12, sin compromises us socially. Verses 13 and 14, sin deadens us. But verses 15 and 16, sin has one remedy. Look at what he says here in verse 15. But for you, O Lord, do I wait. I'm going to wait for you. That's all I can do. It's the only hope that I have. David recognizes that there's nothing he can do to atone for his transgression. There's nothing he can do to deliver himself from his guilt. And so he just sits himself down and says, for you, O Lord, do I wait. The, the biggest problem of my sin is verses 1 and 2, your wrath. The one solution to my sin is what he goes on to say there in verse 15. Confidently, isn't it? It is you, O Lord, my God, who will answer. That's faith. This psalm is all about repentance and faith. David is obviously here repenting of this stuff that has ruined his life, and he's trusting that there is a Redeemer. We see in verse 16, now, you look at verse 16, and it might look to you at first glance like David is mainly concerned about his own reputation. But I think really what this verse shows us is David's concern for the Lord's reputation. He says in verse 16, I said, only let them not rejoice over me who boast against me when my foot slips. And you might think, oh, he just doesn't want to be shown up in public. 
But I don't think that's what's going on here because David is Israel's king. And the downfall of Israel's king means the downfall of Israel's God. So I think this verse is David saying, okay, when I was tempted, I didn't realize how my sin would compromise not just me, but the nation, and how my sin would jeopardize God's reputation. So Lord, don't don't let them rejoice over me. Because for them to rejoice over David is for them to rejoice over Yahweh. So David is waiting on the Lord here in verses 15 and 16. And I think this waiting on the Lord in verses 15 matches the groaning before the Lord, the longing before the Lord, and sighing before him in verses 8 through 10. And then the weakness that we saw in verses 3 through 7 is going to be matched by the the, uh, circumstances that David is going to describe in verses 17 through 20. When he says, for I am ready to fall, I think what he means is something like, I'm about to be unseated from the throne. The government's about to fall. There's about to be a coup. The circumstances are now ripe for my enemies to unseat me. I think that's what's going on here. Uh, That first line of of verse 17, the King James renders that ready to halt. I am ready to halt. And it's it's the idea that the halt is is speaking of this sort of halting, um, uneven footstep. Um, and, And it gets at the this image of somebody who's, they're walking along and, and this halting step results in a collapse. I think that's the, the imagery that's work here, at work here. And um, George Herbert wrote in a poem, he says, Though I fail, I weep. Though I halt in pace, yet I creep to the throne of grace. And that's what David's doing here. He's halting, but he's creeping. He's creeping to the throne. He's crying out to the Lord, I'm ready to fall, my pain is ever before me. And all these circumstances, the stinking, festering wound, the lack of soundness in his flesh, the the groaning in his spirit, this all brings him to say in verse 18, I confess my iniquity, I am sorry for my sin. This is a forthright, humble confession. You notice he doesn't accompany this by any explanations that start to become excuses. He doesn't in any way seek to stir up sympathy for what led him to do this. Simple confession, straightforward. I was wrong. I sinned. I'm sorry. Please forgive me. That's the way you confess. When you confess... Don't make excuses. Don't offer explanations. Don't try to help somebody understand all the attraction of evil. We all know that. We all know what that feels like. Just confess. I was wrong. I'm sorry. Please forgive me. David continues, and he says in verse 19, but my foes are vigorous, they're mighty. I think these are the people probably trying to take over the government, trying to take the, king, the, the throne from David. And many of those, many are those who hate me wrongfully. The foes are many, they're strong, and they're unreasonable. They, they don't have good cause for wanting to put a new king in place. They, 
They're wrong, but still David's sinful, and so his only recourse is to cry out to the Lord. He says in verse 20, those who render me evil for good accuse me because I follow after good. I think that weakened circumstance, the the broader implications of the body politic, we might say, in verses 17 through 20, matches David's physical weakness in verses 3 through 7. And then he returns to where he started from in verses 1 and 2. He returns to that place in verses 21 and 22. And what we see here at the end is that the worst thing about sin is that it separates us from God. That's the worst thing about sin. It, it, it makes it impossible for you to be in the presence of God. So David says here in verse 21, Do not forsake me, O Lord. And I think from that we see that the best thing in David's life was God's presence. And as a sinner, David's only hope to experience God's presence was to experience God's salvation. Do not forsake me, O Lord. O my God, be not far from me. Make haste to help me, O Lord, my salvation. David knows he has no claim on God's mercy. He knows he doesn't deserve it. He knows that his sin compromises his access to God. He also knows that God loves to show mercy to those who confess and repent. So if, you know, if you're here this morning and you're not a believer in Jesus, you're not a Christian, and you wonder exactly what it is about us Christians that, that we think makes us different, it's just that. We, we, we don't think that we deserve salvation. We don't think that we deserve to enter God's presence and dwell with him forever in glory. We, we have not earned that, and we're not inviting you to try to earn that with us. We're inviting you to recognize that we have all together offended a holy God But that holy God responds to people who pray like this. This psalm is equipping you to approach God. This psalm is giving you language and phrases and and ways of thinking that enable you to recognize what's wrong with your life and enable you how to deal with it. So many people in our world, so many people in our world are trying to deal with the guilt that they feel and they're not doing it like this. They're, they're, they're trying to come up with some way to ameliorate that nagging sense that they feel that they, they've done something wrong and they've got to do something to make it right. And this is the only thing that works. The only thing that works is to go to the Lord and say, I'm guilty before you. I recognize the havoc that has been wreaked in my life because of what I've done. And all I can do is wait and ask your forgiveness. This psalm is the the prayer of all true believers of all generations. Every one of us has experienced the theological, physical, spiritual, and societal fruits of our transgressions. And the only hope that any of us has is the one that David acts on in Psalm 38. It's, It's the hope that when we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So this psalm is telling you how to deal with the rubble of sin's destruction. And the lesson applies to believers under the old covenant as well as the new. The cross of Christ makes it where the just God can be the justifier. George Herbert wrote this poem called Discipline. 
Um, it, it was published with all his poems after he died back in 1633. And, and it's almost like this poem is a meditation on Psalm 38. Herbert writes, Throw away thy rod, throw away thy wrath, O my God. Take the gentle path. For my heart's desire unto thine is bent. I aspire to a full consent. Not a word or look I affect to own, but by book and thy book alone. Though I fail, I weep. Though I halt in pace, yet I creep to the throne of grace. Then let thy wrath remove. Love will do the deed. For with love, stony hearts will bleed. Love is swift of foot, loves a man of war, and can shoot and can hit from far. Who can escape his bow? That which wrought on thee, brought thee low, needs must work on me. Throw away thy rod. Though man frailties hath, thou art God. Throw away thy wrath. When he talks about love doing the deed, what he's saying is, your love will make me feel the guilt of my sin. And when he talks about that which brought thee low, what he's saying is it was love that resulted in the justice of God falling on Christ at the cross. And he says, that which brought thee low needs must work on me. That same love of God is what works on us and leads us to repentance. Let's pray. Father, your mercy and forgiveness is beyond anything that any of us could ever have hoped for or imagined. Lord, we are, as David was, guilty before you. And we are astonished and stunned and speechless that you forgive sin, that you would put Christ forward, and that all the justice would fall on him, that there might be no condemnation for those who are in him by faith. And so, Lord, we thank you and praise you that you have called us to yourself, given us eyes to see and ears to hear, and caused our hearts to believe. We praise you, we worship you in Christ by the Spirit. Amen.